and welcome to the Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. I'm Neil Begging, firm leader of Cherry Records Risk Advisory Practice. And today on our podcast, we are going to outline the differences between SOX 404A and 404B and how management might approach them differently. Joining me today is Gareth Montague-Smith and Peyton Black, leaders in Cherry Records Risk Advisory SOX Practice. Gareth and Peyton, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Neil. So guys, in a podcast back in June, we all covered the SOX 404 summer planning considerations. And in order to expand on that idea and to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which is hard to believe, by the way, we thought we'd walk through SOX uh, 404A versus 404B management requirements. Uh, As always, we structure the risk and review series with five key questions. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to start with you, Gareth. What is the difference between 404A and 404B and how is the determination made? So at the very, very high level and most basic elements, Section 404A requires management to report on the effectiveness of internal controls of financial reporting, whereas Section 404B requires an auditor attestation with respect to an issuer's internal control of the financial reporting. So in terms of which one applies, 404A does apply to every public company and companies have to update or attest to their internal controls in their 9A and their 10K and or their item 4 and then 10Qs. And on a macro level, and ignoring some nuances or exceptions that Peyton might get into a little bit later on, large filers, and, and large really refers to revenue and or market cap, they will have to have an auditor attestation or 44B opinion in their second year of being a public company. So Peyton, Gareth mentioned some nuances or exceptions for companies to have to comply with um, their second year 44B attestation. Can you discuss some of those? Sure. Uh, Essentially, there are several benchmarks, including revenue and or market cap rules that determine when a company is under 404A or 404B. Uh, There are also some additional complexities around what is known as emerging growth companies, where depending again on some metrics, a company might not be required to have an ICFR attestation for up to five years after being public. in, in March of 2020, the SEC adopted some amendments to filing status rules and what is required from a SOX perspective. Uh, we put some guidance out uh, last year in the form of a white paper uh, entitled Filing Status and ICFR Compliance Considerations for SPAC and IPO Transactions. Uh, that's available on our external facing webpage at cbh.com under guidance. But essentially this white paper um, you know, includes a really nice table that summarizes the filing status and ICFR disclosure criteria, which particularly is useful in light of those amendments to filing status rules. So we'd we'd recommend that you, you know, check that out if you're, um, you know, potentially uh, moving from, you know, one filing status to another. Um, And and knowing what, which filing status you're under is just really important to understand and stay on top of, as it can have a significant impact on the level of effort management and the external auditor has to incur to comply. Um, and, and really, irrespective of whether the company is 404A or 404B, the external auditor must conduct, you know, still has to conduct procedures over processes. Typically, um, we see, you know, as that is walkthroughs in order to fully understand and identify the likely sources of material misstatements where a necessary control is missing or it's ineffectively designed. I can jump in here, Peyton. One thing that's kind of interesting as it relates to SPACs um, and opinions, and, and although depending who you talk to, that maybe the SPAC market is slowing down a little bit, 
And we talked about this a little earlier with the, the 404B requirement in the second year for both accelerated statuses. And I'll try to not get too much in the weeds. Um, and there's certainly specific guidance in the, the SEC's staff's compliance and disclosure. But essentially, it, when you de-SPAC, so you become the new public company, the internal controls of the SPAC acquirer may no longer exist as they've been sort of supplanted or, or taken over by those of the company with the real operations, the, the private company and the SPAC transaction, and that the previously privately owned company may not yet have appropriate controls in place. As a result, the SEC has come out to say that you that they may not object to management of the combined company omitting its assessment of ICFR in the next annual Form 10-K. So if you think about it, this would be similar to the relief provided in the year of an acquisition for a newly acquired company where you can scope out the controls in a statement in your 9A disclosure. Thanks. Uh, actually, appreciate both of those insights. I want to go back to Peyton here. Peyton, can you help us understand from management's perspective what they have to do under 404A? So to reiterate what Gareth mentioned earlier, relief from the external auditor 404B audit doesn't relieve management of performing their own assessment of ICFR. However, it does allow management a lot of flexibility regarding the nature, timing, and extent of testing, which could differ significantly. Um, the SEC has released guidance that states that because management is responsible for maintaining reasonable evidential support for its assessment, management's daily interaction with its controls, including ongoing direct involvement and supervision of their execution based on their risk assessments, this really could provide management with sufficient knowledge to assess ICFR that the external auditor not knowing the business as well and having a different end objective is un unlikely to be able to have that same flexibility in approach. In other words, you know, the burden of evidence is potentially less for management under 404A than 404B. But as with everything, management's approach to SOC should be based on their specific circumstances and risk appetite. Okay, so so high level to kind of sum up the, the last uh, few here. Um, 404A up to management, auditors not required to do testing. But Garrett, you know, are there situations in which an auditor might still want to do more than a walkthrough? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're an auditor and you're not required to issue an integrated opinion under PCV standards, so you're under 404A, you may still want to test internal controls for operating effectiveness in order to get to your uh, necessary evidence to sign off on your audit opinion on the entity's financial statements. Um, that you could see that in that they, the audit firm or the auditor could not did not believe they could do enough substantive work to get there, and or it may be more efficient to do some internal controls to reduce the the level of substantive test substantive testing. One area that we see that in a lot is the ITGC or Information Technology General Controls, where the approach is often more efficient and effective to test internal controls. So auditors may end up testing. IT controls to obtain evidence related to information that is dependent. So uh, you think about your completeness and accuracy of spreadsheets and reports. Hey, uh, and great points on IT uh, general controls, Gareth. Let me jump in for a second too. Um, you know, really talking with your auditor on their audit approach early and often is extremely important. You know, and, and before we close, I, I did just want to reiterate that the filing status determination is assessed annually generally as of a company's second fiscal quarter. Um, so depending on where your company is and its life cycle, there's the possibility that you could move from SOX 404A 
to 404B one year and then vice versa the next, uh, you know, and that can have a big impact on management's and the external auditor's time commitments, level of efforts and costs. Uh, and really the main point here is just to make sure you know the guidance, talk to your SEC counsel and, and stay ahead of it so that there are no surprises. You know, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed, but it's, you know, still very relevant and, you know, still needed, you know, even after all these years later. So, um, you know, talk with your auditor, talk with your SEC counsel, stay on top of your filing status and, you know, any service providers that you have to make sure that, um, you know, you can efficiently and effectively uh, perform your your SOX testing. Absolutely, Peyton. Thanks, thanks for that. In 20 years, yeah, it, it is uh, mind-blowing to think about that. And, and even now, how much uh, relevance SOX still has in our world and so many others. Uh, there's just an article that came out today about the PCOB, um, you know, to expect tougher regulations even in this 20th anniversary of SOX. So really appreciate both of your insights here. Thank you to our audience for listening. Obviously, a lot to unpack on SOX 404A and 404B. If you have questions, about which approach your company should take, what level of involvement um, and um, overall approach, please reach out to your financial advisor or the SEC counsel. Uh, you can also feel free to reach out to Cherry Beckert with any questions. We're happy to uh, field those. Um, we ask that you stay connected as we deliver more episodes of this podcast series where we will cover topics such as ESG, responsible innovation, internal controls automation, and much, much more. Uh, speaking of more, for more information on SOX compliance or internal controls, we ask that you visit cbh.com forward slash risk. And as always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. And thanks again for listening.